0: I believe today is another milestone for finally. A few months ago, the Unveiled team and I were frustrated with the lack of coverage on patient and provider psychology in the aesthetics industry. Today, we're publishing our 10th episode, which seems crazy to me already, and I couldn't think of a better guest to celebrate this with. Founder and President of Orient Strategic Consulting, Brian Hayes, I'm honored to have you with me today. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, George. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to
1: be here. I'm honored to be the special milestone guest here. So congratulations on the
0: journey so far. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you. Now the pleasure is all mine. So Brian, you've been in the aesthetics industry for for nearly 25 years. I think it'd be wonderful if you could give our audience a brief background to yourself and what you're working on right now. Sure. So
1: to make it as brief as possible, as you say, it's hard to believe that it's been 25 years, but Yeah, started 25 years ago as a sales rep in the aesthetic industry, working for an energy and laser-based device company, and continued the career from there. Really enjoyed the aesthetic space, working with the surgeons and doctors. And so I grew my career from sales into management positions about 20, 21 years ago, and since then been in management functions and leadership roles predominantly in sales and marketing, field sales, field marketing here in North America. And then ultimately grew to where my last corporate role, I was effectively the division manager, ran a complete division within one of the aesthetic device companies where I oversaw the sales marketing teams, the clinical team, the service team, et cetera. So a pretty diverse group over a big area. And then decided with some changes personally and professionally to Make a different shift. I was getting tired of the corporate grind. I wanted to do my own thing, pretty entrepreneurial. So I started Orion Consulting to really around the idea of providing, in general terms, business support for doctors. I saw over the last several years in working with doctors in the field. More and more business challenges come up, more and more business difficulties, more and more pressures on the practices from a competitive standpoint, how to stand out, how to run the business. And so I created Orion with the idea of really trying to give back and leverage some of the experience that I had over the last 20, 25 years on the
0: business side and bring it to the providers and the doctors. And what made you want to shift towards that? Was there a specific aspect of consulting that you thought that was the niche you wanted to get into, or you had like an academic interest, or it was, I said, personal, professional?
1: Yeah, balance of personal and professional. On the personal side, the thing I loved best about my job in the leadership roles was the time I got to spend coaching, teaching, supporting the team itself. And that was really what I loved most. And as I got higher up the corporate ladder, dealing more with CEOs and boards of directors, I was doing less and less of the coaching direct interaction. It was occupying less of my time. And so personally, I wanted to get back to that. Professionally, I looked at it a couple of ways. I really saw good practices and good doctors who were doing everything right clinically had a great approach, they were highly skilled, but were really struggling on the business side as things got more challenging and more complex and more competitive. And I really wanted to give back, I really wanted to help. In the course of my corporate career, as I would meet with doctors out in the field, inevitably it would lead to questions of, hey, what do you think of this? Or here's a challenge that I'm dealing with. And it would be an off the cuff sort of relationship or question and answer. And I really thought, quite frankly, at the risk of it sounding trite, I really thought I could help. I really thought that I could bring something to help some very good practices be successful on the business side.
0: And what you mentioned the kind of business problems of people that medically you know, were exceptional. What kind of problems were you seeing arise in these conversations again and again? You know, I think first and
1: foremost, I
0: think as things have gotten much
1: more competitive, as I look back on my career, when I started, I don't want to ever say it was easy, but it was certainly easier in the sense that aesthetics was pretty much all plastic surgeons and dermatologists. And so in those days, if you put up a sign, if you just made it known that, hey, I'm Dr. Jones, plastic surgeon, people who are looking for those types of services would come to you. And as the business has grown and matured and evolved, and as Procedures, so many non-invasive procedures have grown up and awareness has grown and it's become so much more commonplace and acceptable for aesthetic procedures these days. The competitiveness has also grown. The business challenges have also grown. So I think it's twofold. One is just this general business challenges of any small business owner, that it's more complex. There's more ways to communicate. There's more choices for any business. And anyone trying to attract customers. Then the specifics within aesthetics of doctors who are used to a traditional approach, which is just let them know that you're a doctor, that you're out there, show them your credentials, show them the experience that you have, and they'll come to your door. That's just not true anymore. It's much more competitive. And here in the US, anyway, we're seeing the rise of major corporate chains of med spas, and we're starting to see growth of corporate-owned practices and new providers coming into the space. And so competition is growing. Choice is growing. So the basic fundamental business approach of how do I position my practice? How do I make sure that I'm standing out to the right patients, the right customers? How do I build a team that's successful and thriving every day, et cetera, et cetera, those challenges are all becoming more complex and more amplified in this time. So I think what used to be, say, an irritation or basic challenge has now gotten more and more complex to where it becomes a front of mind daily
0: challenge. Sure. So do you think the challenges are primarily marketing? Or do you think that the challenges are about business infrastructure and the surgeon's role as a business person, as well as the face of the practice and obviously getting the best results and care for patients too? Right. Yeah, it's a great
1: question. I mean, to be frank, I would say my answer to that's evolved. If you asked me that a few years ago, I would say it's marketing, right? The basic approach of my business isn't where I want it to be. Almost inevitably that meant i don't have enough patients we're not busy enough or we want we're busy but we want to get busier etc and so the answer almost inevitably was how do we market more effectively how do we attract more patients more 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 growth growth and what i've learned pretty quickly as i started to work with some of these practices is that that's not the primary challenge what I mean by that is, as I started to work with practices who felt like, I think there's, if I step back for a second, I think there's a traditional message and myth within business, which says busier, new revenue, more revenue is the cure for everything. And it's not the case. If you have a practice where you're dealing with a lot of transactional fickle patients who don't really build loyalty to you and only want Botox for less and less and less, If you have a team where you're not sure, does everybody show up on time? Are they engaged? Are they focused in the right way, et cetera? Getting busier is not going to help those challenges. If anything, it's going to make them worse. But it's not just true in our business. It's true in any business. If you were a small business owner in any industry and started to Google, how do I help my business? Inevitably, it's going to start with marketing, growth, get busier, more revenue. And that's not the answer. It could certainly make you busier, but it doesn't necessarily make you better. So really what I learned pretty quickly was to change the focus from a busier business to a better business. And for example, I worked with a client that really years ago that changed my perspective where he told me, look, I'm not trying to get busier. I'm already too busy. I'm here till nine o'clock at night. I got to get better. I'm stressed. I'm spending too much time doing work I don't enjoy doing and that I don't think I'm the best at doing. How do I get better? How do I get a better team? How do we get more efficient? And so, what you see is that we spent time together. We really dug into his team, into his processes, into the business structure and the fundamentals, and particularly helped him develop as a leader. And it really changed the way his practice runs. And now if we looked at it on a spreadsheet, is it dramatically different? No, he was financially successful before. But his quality of life, the way the practice runs, the team itself, the type of patients that they attract is significantly improved. And so their business is significantly better, even if it's only incrementally busier if that makes sense.
0: Sure, and I'm sure you get some resistance when you talk about some of these things because it's so entrenched that more, more, more is the way forward and growth is the only avenue. And I think in you know, when it comes to marketing, it is the case that some practices do not have enough patience to sustain themselves. And it's also the case that some practices do have enough patience and maybe they're too busy. And that's when they face some of the issues that you've been talking about. Is there any advice you would give to somebody listening where they could say, which bracket or which bucket do I fall into? Do I actually have a marketing problem or do I actually have an infrastructure and a business problem? Right. That's a great question. The first
1: thing I would say is that it's not, in my experience, it's not binary. I think a lot of practices start with that, that am I not busy enough or am I too busy? Do I need to get busier or better? I don't think it's so much binary. So one of the first places I start with with my clients is with mindset or their worldview. And while that can sound a little maybe soft or fluffy, particularly for a, a practice, of, hey, I'm Brian, I'm trying to get busier, I'm trying to get better business. And you're talking to me about mindset and worldview. Like <laughs> I need practical advice here. But my point is that again, to the traditional business myths that I look at it that most of the traditional business teaching to any small business is focus on getting busy. Then once you're busy and successful and the revenue's coming in, then backtrack and you can get better. Once you're busy, then you can go back and hire better people. Once you're busy, then you can get pickier about the type of patients or clients that you have. And it's exactly the opposite. If you look at the great successful businesses out there, one of the core differences is not so much what they do in their business or their practice, but which of the things they put the most importance on. And so when you look at great companies, Zappos, Chick fil A here in the US, Southwest Airlines, these companies that have sustainable decades and decades of success, not only their own success, but outperform their markets, their competitors, what they do is they focus on getting good. They focus on all these important things. What they place their most importance on is getting the foundation right. So they focus on a really strong foundation around people, people in their team, great employees, a great system, them as leaders, building other leaders within the organization, great customers or patients. So understanding that I can't effectively serve every single patient in aesthetics, who are my patients? Who are the best patients that will really be attracted to what I offer, who, where I can build long-term relationships and loyalty with them? If you do that well, it will get bigger and busier. There's a quote by Katie Truett, the founder of Chick-fil-A restaurants here in the U.S., a very successful large chain that said, we don't focus on getting bigger. If we focus on getting better, bigger will take care of itself. And so, it's really a big mindset shift that happened for me and that I put to my clients as well, that you have to shift around, say, the financial success, the traditional measurements of business success, and see them not as a goal, but as an outcome. If you do the right things, the numbers will come. If you focus on the numbers, you might get the numbers, but you might do it in a way that has you surrounded every day by the wrong people on your team, the wrong patients in your practice, et cetera. And
0: that's not a sustainable approach. So, so what can practices do? And I love Chick-fil-A, by the way, whenever I'm on my travels, I eat far too much of it. So, but what can practices do when it comes to laying the right foundations? And you were talking there about setting the right process so that if you do the process right, the outcome is almost inevitable. But it's a symptom of that rather than you going through, you know, weird tactics or getting as many people in as possible and just being chaotic, trying to reach that. So what can they do for that foundation and that process?
1: So what I did is I spent a lot of time, even before starting my own consulting agency and coaching agency, I spent a lot of time on answering that question myself for my own business and for my own teams. And what I found, if you look again at these great companies like Chick-fil-A, Southwest Airlines, Zappos, et cetera, what do they have in common? What do they see as the foundation? And what I did is I took that. And then adapted it to, okay, if a practice said, ask me the very question you just asked, which is, okay, you're telling me foundation, what is it specifically? Then I built an outline of what the most important things are that I think will build a solid foundation for a practice. And first and foremost is leadership. And that's one of those terms that can sound a little smoky or, you know, okay, what's leadership? And while, you know, we could do a whole session just on leadership, the important thing that I say to clients is it starts there because it starts with you. Business is a team sport and teams rely, great teams come from great leaders. They rely on great leaders. Teams will tend not to outgrow their leaders. And so it starts with them. It starts with them being a better leader And it's not just becoming a better leader in order to achieve business growth. Becoming a better leader is also going to create massive changes and improvements in their quality of life. And what I mean by that is there's way too much traditional approach to business that's very management heavy. And the best quote I know to illustrate the distinction is by Grace Hopper, who said, You manage things, you lead people. And what I see with a lot of practices and any small business owner typically is, way too much management of things, way too much focus on the spreadsheet, the data, the tracking, the numbers, the hours, et cetera. All of that's important. But as the CEO of the practice, the bulk of your time day in and day out has to be focused on leadership and leaderships about people. Do I have the right people? Do I have the right people managing the spreadsheets, the numbers, the data, the patients, et cetera. And if you do that effectively and delegate it well, not only does the team run better, but your quality of life is much easier, much more spent on big picture, major operational pieces and not on the details so that 10 o'clock at night, you're reviewing spreadsheets. Right. The other pieces are planning and planning around. Well, let's and- just,
0: if I could just focus on leadership for a second, I just want to dig into that a little bit and we'll come back to the framework. I, I apologize for interrupting you All there, right. Brian. But, okay. you know, with our clients, and I'm sure you see this to yourself, is that some of them want to be really ingrained in the management and the business side of the practice. Other surgeons want to be a surgeon who is running a business. And, and those feel very distinct to me between a business person and a surgeon. And it's almost a spectrum of how involved they want to be on the business side of things. Is there a right or wrong there? I mean, should the surgeons stick to surgery? Should they focus more on becoming part of the business in terms of the management and you know the tracking and all that side of thing? Where is the best point for them on that spectrum? Yeah, great question. So my direct answer
1: is there's not a right or wrong. There's nothing wrong with say a surgeon who says, Look, I want to be a surgeon every day, I want the bulk of my day to be a surgeon, and not deal with the day to day operational business, etc. Or the opposite. There's no right or wrong. But My message always is, and I think it's true, this is, for example, this challenge of being the business owner, as well as the key service provider, the key product, if you will. That's not really unique to aesthetics. It's true of you and I in our business. It's true of, say, a software designer that leaves Microsoft or Apple and starts his own company or her own company. So... There's always that balance between how much of me in my role should I be as the provider, et cetera, and how much involvement should I have in the business. And I think the answer is the same regardless of the business, but particularly to aesthetics is that as the business leader, you need to be the CEO. And to that extent, the CEO of any corporation they certainly understand their business. They understand numbers. They meet with people who run the numbers. They wanna understand it. They wanna review spreadsheets, but they're not making the spreadsheets. They're not the experts in the spreadsheets. And to that is really the point of, there's a difference between being involved. You need to be involved and you need to be on top of the numbers. I don't wanna say that you can be a complete absentee owner, if you will. The level of involvement you can adjust. But if you're a plastic surgeon, let's say, and you want to really get down in the weeds of the numbers of the marketing approach of the creation, et cetera, that's fine. But if you're the key component, key contributor to all of those pieces, you're going to have a 20 hour day if you do it effectively. And you're going to end up with a team that spends a lot of its time sitting around waiting for you to contribute. And it's not good for your time. It's not good for your health, I don't think. And it's not good for the team performance. So there's a difference. I try to separate. There's a difference between being involved and aware with all these processes and taking control of them, right? And so as the leader, I'm leading the people who specialize in that. And I think more than ever these days, whether you bring people on your team or you outsource skills like, say, marketing, whether it's in-house or outside, you need to lead it. You need to set the course. You need to set the direction. You need to be real specific and picky about the people that you have running it. But really, you want to surround yourself with experts. You want the people running the numbers to be experts at numbers. You want them to be as good at their job as you are at yours as a surgeon. And that's really where the magic's going to happen. So it's not so much a case of involvement or focus. It's really that distinction between you want to lead all those processes, but not manage them.
0: And what do you think setting direction looks like? Let's take marketing, for example. Yeah, I know you work with surgeons with processes and you know we work with them some way with processes, but also in marketing. What do you think the expectation should be from the surgeon when it comes to, say, telling their marketing department or their agency that this is the direction to go in? Great question. So I think in terms of direction,
1: I guess there's a lot of answers to that. But I think if I play out, say, the scenario of the surgeon interacting with the marketing team, whether they're in-house or outside, it's less about the surgeon saying specifically, you can contribute anything you want. You could say, look, This is the type of look I want. These are the colors that I want our brand to be built around, et cetera. You can contribute all of that. But if you're knee deep in the messaging of, okay, I want this word changed to this, and I want that changed to that, and I want it here, not there, I think that's too much. I don't think that, now again, there are some surgeons that I have met a few who really have educated themselves on, say, in particular, social media marketing, etc. I'm not saying they should stay out of it, but I am saying that more than ever, you should surround yourself with the experts and that expert might not be you. And so in putting a marketing campaign, and again, I don't mean in any way to diminish the importance of marketing. Every business has to be able to communicate their message and put it out there simply that, traditionally it's looked at as that's the only thing that's it you get marketing right and everything goes from there so my point here to your question as a leader would be meeting with the marketing team you really need to communicate the vision and direction you have for the message so what are we trying to say who are we trying to reach who are the ideal patients that we want to reach and if we don't if you don't know that How do we find out who they are? And I really, to this point, within the process of leadership, the point of leadership really, great leadership comes from great questions more than even great answers. As the leader, I'm not going to be expected to have every single answer. I need to ask important questions. Who are our ideal patients? And if nobody knows, then we've got a task. we got to figure that out, for example, right? And so I want to lead that process. The doctor, the surgeon should lead that process and help clarify, this is what's important to us. These are the types of patients we want to attract. This is the type of message we want to send. This is our vision for who we want to be. And I would tell you that I work with a lot of practices who tell me, well, I have a marketing agency and I told them that, but they told me, no, you need to communicate this message. You need to market this and you need to. And again, that's tail wagging the dog. That's a case of now you're managing marketing campaigns instead of leading marketing efforts. And I don't mean to make it just about semantics, but the difference is important that the doctors really lead that process about its direction, its purpose, the goals, and then surround yourself with good people who are going to say, ready, set, go, and we'll
0: go and execute on that vision while you're in surgery. And it sounds like curiosity is a major factor in that as well, you know, asking the certain questions and, and almost being aware of what questions are worth asking. And, you know, and that's a part of leadership. You know, if you say you look around the room or Zoom these days, and if nobody can answer it, then you have something you need to work on. But I understand, you know, leadership is just one part of the foundation. What else should their uh, practices be focusing on?
1: Yeah, it's one part of the foundation, but it's for my practice, for my clients, it's the key part. It's it really that's what's unlocking all the rest of it because it has to start with leadership. And so, from there, very simply, I have six key components that all interact, all interact. They're not silos, but just real quickly first is vision, strategy, and tactics. So, having a clear vision of what's the purpose of the practice? What are we doing this for? If I often ask the surgeons I work with, if we were going to your retirement party, and you're looking back on your practice, what stands out to you? How do you know it's successful? I doubt you'd pull up a spreadsheet or numbers or metrics and say, well, look at the awards. You probably talk about impact and people and who you helped, et cetera. So make that more of a clear vision to help inspire the direction of who you hire, who you attract as patients, et cetera. And really that leads to having a clear plan of how you're gonna achieve those goals. And the second piece is exceptional teams, really making a commitment, again, to surround yourself with incredible people. I think a lot of doctors feel, as many small businesses do, particularly these days with the great resignation, that people feel vulnerable of, I want a good team around me, but I don't want to invest too much in them and then have them leave, and what if they leave me stranded? Again, the great companies know that this is where all the magic happens really building an exceptional team, really building great people around you. And again, if it's well-led and you have clear vision and clear focus and direction, and you know who the right people are, you know, as Jim Collins, the author of Good to Great says, if you get the right people in the right seats, it's going to be an incredible run for you. And again, the leader gets benefit as well, that this is giving you the comfort, the peace of mind, not only the business results, but the personal peace of mind that Things are in good hands. I know it's being handled. I don't have to lie awake at night worrying what's going to happen tomorrow. Is everybody going to show up, et cetera?
0: And how do you know? I mean, there are two parts there about the the right people and, and the right seats. I mean, that's something that we come across quite often is surgeons not knowing who do we actually want around us. What are the roles that make a successful practice when it comes to the team, you know, underneath the surgeon or working alongside them? Right. So, again, great question.
1: It's, again, there's so much we could do just on hiring and team building. But I would say it starts, again, to getting the right people on the team and who are the right people. Again, this comes up a lot with practices of, look, Brian, good people are hard to find. It's challenging out there. It's more challenging than ever during this great resignation. People want all, they're making all kinds of demands and they want these great jobs and I just got to take what I can get. And that's really where it starts. You can't compromise on the people in your team. And so I emphasize, you know, at Southwest Airlines, for example, they always talked about hire the things you can't teach. And so, for example, what I mean is most practices, let's say we're hiring for a front desk position. And practices will say, well, look, this is a pretty basic kind of entry-level position, so I'm not going to go crazy. Look, this is what I want. I want some basic skill sets, ideally, if they've had some experience at a plastic surgeon's office, et cetera, et cetera. So here's the list of skill sets. Okay, and you get 20 resumes, and you do some basic interviewing, and this person seems fine, and so you hire them, and then you cross your fingers and hope for the best. That's leaving too much to chance and luck. And so when I talk to doctors and ask them, you know, what would you look for in front desk? Here's all the skill sets. If I ask them, tell me about the best people on your team right now. Tell me about them. What makes them the best people on your team? And what I'll get usually is a list of, well, she's passionate. She's dedicated. She's an incredible teammate. She always gives her best. You know, she's always asking how to help. She improves herself. She's learning all the time and wants to go to conferences and get better. So if you take that list of what makes the great people on your team and you take the list of requirements for the job, you can see they're completely different. You're hiring skills and you're hoping to get all these character traits. And so what I try to do is shift the mindset of my clients to, you got to focus on who you hire, not the skills you hire. Because look, if you hired someone for the front desk, there's lots of courses online at conferences that can teach you how to get better at answering phone calls, handling patients, customer service, et cetera. All the skills of that job can be taught. You could build a training program that teach someone at a high level. I can't teach someone how to have integrity. I can't teach someone how to have passion. I can't teach someone to care and give a crap about their job or my patients, right? So I have to hire that. I have to hire the things I can't teach. But there's a defensive mentality, if you will, to hiring, for example, which is "Mm, I'm not sure about this person, but they have great skill sets and they've done it a long time and they have good references. So Mm. I'll take a chance. And that's how you end up with a patchwork team of a mismatch of people. We get some incredible people and some "Mm, not so incredible. And that's not going to be a high-performance team. So it all starts with right people. Before we get into right seats, we got to get the right people. Now, from that, for example, I know a nurse that I always think of in these discussions that a few years ago, she was a nurse injector at a practice and really good at what she did, but her passion was marketing. Her passion was communicating with patients. And she really did her own work, took her own courses, and taught herself marketing and became the marketing manager for the practice. And she's phenomenal at it because she's passionate about it and she has these skill sets. but she also has this clinical background so she can understand it well. So she's the right person who found her right seat, right? And so that's much more powerful, let's say, than saying, you know, Janet, you're a nurse, let's keep you being a nurse and let's find a marketing person, let's say, right? Because what she brought wasn't necessarily the marketing skill sets and the experience by any stretch, but she brought a passion and a determination to be good at it and a knowledge base that
0: nobody from the marketing
1: side could bring. Right. So, first, right person, then, right seat.
0: But how do you combine that with we have an open position, right? I mean, maybe not every practice has the luxury of kind of a rolling, you know, hiring philosophy where they're bringing people on all the time and then finding what's best for them. Even if you know that we need to fill the front desk position, how can you hire for personality traits rather than necessarily just skill sets?
1: Yeah, you know the time pressure. So the two points to hopefully to address your question accurately: the time pressure first and foremost, right? That I talk to practices who say, "Boy, that's all well and good, Brian." And in a perfect world, I'd do that. But look, TikTok. And there's no one at the front desk and I'm asking other people on the team to cover and I don't have time for great. I just gotta get acceptable. And to that I say, well, without being trite, if you don't make time to do it right, you'll make time to do it over. And the rushing approach to people, the cost of doing it wrong is far beyond what you think it is, what most practices think it is. Meaning that, okay, I hire somebody quickly. I hire the best of what I got. I hire the most mediocre person I can, right? And I don't expect that practices hire mediocre people, but we put more into, I trust them, they've done this job before, they'll be fine. So you put them in place and they do the job. At the front desk, that's the first impression for your practice. And if every fifth call, she alienates a prospective patient, There's 20% in business that's not coming into your practice. If you're a surgeon and that average patient is $5,000, that's a lot of money every year and as long as it goes on. Now, if you find out, well, that's not going to work, so I'm going to change her. Now you do it over. Now you're repeating the process. And the estimates are anywhere between 50% and 200% of a person's salary to replace them if you had to terminate them. So now you've got a direct cost that you gotta rehire somebody else, put the piece in place, you've got the disruption to your team, disruption to your practice, any more gaps that now we're right back to where we were with more team members covering it, et cetera. So I'm giving you a nightmare scenario, but it's not far fetched right and worse are practices who say eh, he or she they're not great, but what if I hire somebody worse? And so they just accept it and put up with it. And it's costing them money. And again, from a team perspective, you may be pushing out good team members right now who say, I don't want to work around mediocre people. So it could cost you even more on the other end. So the cost of doing it wrong is astronomical. Now it's people. So you're not going to be perfect. You're not going to bat hundred percent, but at least if you put the effort in and the process and take your time and really commit to it, you're going to do it well more often than not. And you're going to mitigate any potential damage or side effects. And so my advice is, I get it. We're all under a time crunch, but you got to take as long as it takes. And you got to put the effort in. And you also have to understand that if you're looking for great people, just numerically, there are less of them. There's a lot more mediocre than sure. great. So you're going to have to work a little harder. You're going to have to sift through more resumes. You're going to have to do more interviews. But I really feel like the time investment on the front rather than pays for itself on the back end and down the road. And so I certainly point to that as a key factor for practices.
0: Sure. And I think if you can bat 50% on employees, then that's probably about the best you can get. You know, just taking into account, look, and not knowing how somebody's going to be on the job and... That's what I've heard from people in aesthetics and other industries. I want to take a step back too, if that's okay, and ask, do you think that medical professionals are prepared for business life? You know, do you think their training has helped them when it comes to, to running their own practice and running it as a CEO, or do you think there should be more support there?
1: Yeah, the simple answer is I think that considering the challenges of running and owning your own practice the challenges of being a small business owner who happens to be a a surgeon i think those challenges need some more attention and i think that there should be some more formal aspects of education through the process for doctors that isn't there that said i would say that almost every conversation with my clients starts with some version of, you know, Brian, I didn't have formal business training. I didn't get any formal business classes, et cetera, as part of my medical training. Quite frankly, as we've talked about, I'm not a fan of traditional business teaching. And I think that most of the business, formal business education that's out there these days is created around outdated processes, outdated messages aimed at very large corporations, not small businesses. So I don't think a lot of it is helpful, quite frankly. So yes, I think the simple answer is yes, there needs to be more attention paid to it. There needs to be more education and awareness. But I think it also, the education itself needs a radical updating to be more effective or more useful to doctors and small business owners these days. I think there's an assumption, though, from that, for example, that says, I graduated with a medical degree, taught me how to treat patients and be a surgeon, but didn't teach me how to run a small business. But again, that's also true of the software engineer who leaves Apple. It's true of a lot of people. It's even true of business people who might've been VP of marketing or VP of sales at a company, but that's not the same as owning your own business, as you know, right? Right. There's a lot of other dynamics and elements to it. So I think part of it is, yes, there needs to be some education, yes, there also needs to be some understanding that there's maybe not a perfect way to prepare for it. And that's where I constantly fall back to the leadership piece. The one aspect that I do talk to clients about that is somewhat unique for doctors and particularly surgeons coming into owning their own business is the process of becoming a surgeon itself. So the grueling grind of going from medical school, of getting accepted, of being one of the elite in your class to get accepted to medical school. And then once in medical school, being one of the elite to get accepted to a surgical program. And then again, into plastic surgery rotations and residency, et cetera, et cetera. So that competitive nature, and then within the programs, this very authoritarian, do it perfectly, no tolerance for mistakes, no room for error, If you get it wrong, Brian, there's someone right behind you that will replace you, etc. I'm certainly not qualified to judge whether there are better ways to create surgeons. It certainly seems to be working. I think in the U.S. and North America, Western Europe has phenomenal surgeons and doctors. But it's not the best environment in which to learn leadership. It's a great way to learn management and authoritarian management. It's not a great way to learn leadership. And so what I see as a first start that does create some challenges for surgeons is that they start their business and their practice with, in my mind, an incorrect, very managerial mindset that starts them on the path of, this is what I expect, task focus, get it right or else,
0: there's always someone else, et cetera, not the best way to build a team. Have you seen pitfalls with that approach when it comes to surgeons, you know, maybe talking to the staff that way or setting that as the philosophy and team morale around it? Sure. I've seen it. I've seen, for example,
1: great surgeons where I talk to them and they're perfectly personal. They're great people. They're great out in the front of the practice and then see them, you know, snap and yell at staff that made a mistake. And in talking to them a lot of times they don't even realize they're doing it. It's just a kind of a natural reaction and a natural tendency of what they've done. And I think even more pervasive is the traditional business myth of the blending of leadership and management. Most traditional business teaching is focused on how to be an effective manager, not how to be a great leader, even if they use the term leader. And what I mean by that is that For example, I've had several clients give me some version of the phrase, I need to be an authority. I need to be the boss. I need to let people know I'm in charge or they won't respect me. Sure. And again, that's not true. They might fear you. They might, if you take the traditional carrot and stick approach to team building and management, you know, you'll get compliance, you'll get task accomplished but it's not leadership. And so then when you come and say, how do I motivate my team? How do I inspire them? How do I get them to be more innovative? How do I get them to take more initiative? It starts with you, not them. They're not going to outgrow you. They're not going to take initiative if the penalty for failure is so severe. If it's all carrot and stick, I'm not going to do anything unless either there's a fear of punishment or a reward on the other end. And that approach either makes it a really difficult place to work where everyone's afraid of the stick or a really expensive place to work where the only way I get people to do things is if I pay them more and reward them more and bonus them more.
0: And then you're constantly pricing yourself out of business. Sure. So I'm thinking, you know, leadership is important. Your team is important. I was also reading on your website before the show how, you do kind of like a, a state of the practice analysis. What, what other areas would, would you look at in that? So with it, I look at,
1: for example, their ideal patients. Do they know who their ideal patients are? This ties into marketing. While I don't focus specifically on marketing, again, I focus on the foundation that enables their marketing approach to be more effective. And again, to that, I think the traditional approach is more. Get more patients. Here's a hot new procedure. Let's add it and attract those patients. Hey, what about prejuvenation for millennials? Let's start doing that. I'm not saying any of that is wrong or right, but it's like any business. It's going to be hard for you to stand out if you're a generalist. I know that message is out there a lot for practices, but I think it gets misinterpreted as I'm the breast augmentation specialist, I'm the facelift specialist. And I don't mean it so narrowly. It's just a case of the same way we just, there are so many parallels between team building and building a base of ideal patients, meaning who are they? Who do you want in your practice? And I asked somewhat the same questions that I asked with team. Who are your best patients? Who are those patients that just love you no matter what? Who hug you when you see them? Who cry tears of joy with their results? And the doctors will say, if I had all that, if my entire practice was that patient, oh, what a joy it would be. Okay, so focus on finding more of those patients. And it gets rejected Is that's a fantasy world. You can't have that. Look, realistically, you can't have 100% of that. Well, you could do way more than having 10% of that. And part of the challenge and the reason that you don't have more than you do is you're trying to be all things to everyone. And you know, as Seth Godin says, Customers can choose anyone. And if your marketing says, hey, we're anyone, then you're gonna get a mishmash of patients. And why would a patient choose your practice for Botox, let's say, over a large Med MedSpot chain? That Med MedSpot chain spends way more on marketing than you can. They buy their Botox most likely cheaper than you can. They have price advantages. They have volumetric advantages let them have the patient that only cares about how cheap the botox is and focus your efforts on attracting the patients who care about outcomes who don't care about the brand they don't care what's in the syringe they care who's holding the syringe and focus on that and i think that's a big part of my message as well is getting clear on what type of patient do you want and again to quote seth godin Of his message of minimum viable audience on focusing on a narrow focus on specifically attracting the right patients to your practice not any old aesthetic patient and again that to me isn't about one particular procedure or type of procedure it's about the type of patient and it could be a whole range of procedures but the type of patient that's interested in those procedures and i think look you know to make it very binary on the business side There are price focused transactional patients out there who don't aren't going to build loyalty, just want a quick, easy, inexpensive Botox, and they'll be fine with the outcome. And next quarter, they might pick another provider that's cheaper or closer or whatever the tiebreaker is. And there's a group of patients that look for relationships. They want to build a relationship with a practice, with the people in your practice, with your team, with you. And that's where you should be focused. You should be focused on those people. Again, all of my messaging is about building a sustainable business for the long term. If you want to get busier next month, there's a million ways to do it. If you want to be busy and successful and have a thriving practice that you love going to for years to come, that's a different approach. And it's a little harder at first,
0: but once you build it, it's going to be sustainable for a long time. Well you just mentioned as well, having a practice that you love going to, you know another thing on your website that kind of resonated with me and I was interested in in why you thought this was worth mentioning is where you said, "Restore your passion. Is it something where you're seeing surgeons are coming to you and just saying, "I'm tired of running my practices this where you know this life isn't what I expected it to be, or what kind of made you think this is a vital point worth mentioning? Well, in talking with doctors again, over several years, even my corporate role, if
1: doctors opened up about the stress that they had in their practice, it really wasn't clinical. It really wasn't about, "Mm, I don't like doing facelifts anymore. I don't like doing surgery anymore. In many cases, they love doing the procedures. They love being and love being a doctor, being a surgeon. It's all the other stuff right? It's the, I come into my office and there's drama. I just want to treat my patients. And I got staff members arguing, somebody took my lunch out of the break room and she never respects me. And she took my scrubs. I don't want to deal with this. You know, patients who are like, that's great. I know you're board certified. I'll give you $4 a unit for Botox. Those are the frustrations. And almost inevitably, even if they talk clinically again to the patients don't care, they don't get it. They don't really understand and appreciate the value of what I provide. That again, to me is the business conversation that goes back to the last topic that we talked about of selecting the right patients. And so restoring the passion is look here in the U.S. I S I don't know in the UK, but here in the U S there's been a trend over the last several years of practices selling out well before retirement age, doctors selling their individual practices either to big corporate-owned practice groups or, here in the U.S., private equity firms. And the thought process that they have is one of, look, this is a great deal. I sell my practice. I become an employee, basically. But I show up. I do surgery. I practice medicine. Other people worry about the business. And it's not my problem. And I get it. I understand. And I'm not talking any doctor out of that, if that's what you want. I think there are some doctors that go down a path of private practice, of owning their own practice, just like we all do with entrepreneurship and think this is going to be great and then get into it and say, look, this isn't my thing. That's fine. If you want to be a doctor and you want to be part of the team where you just practice medicine, God bless. That's great. But I also think there are a lot of doctors who really do want to be entrepreneurs, really want to run their own practice, really want to set the trends and the direction, but just are so frustrated and beat down by the business every day that they just say, forget it. It's not worth it. And so my point here really is, if you want to run your own practice, do it. And it doesn't have to be that comes with sacrifices to personal life, to mental health to et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't have to be either or. If you ran your practice better, if you ran it as a better business, then it would inspire you and fuel the clinical side of yourself. And so again, if you were a great leader, a great CEO of your practice, you could effectively walk into your practice in the same way as if it were owned by someone else. If you have all the people in place that are running the business for you, you still get to run it, it's your practice. You're calling the shots, you're setting the direction, but the day-to-day operational pieces are in the hands of experts. And as a leader, that's what you're guiding. And it'll eliminate the, you don't have to deal, I'm not saying you won't ever have the drama of who stole my yogurt out of the break room, but you're not dealing with it. And it's not going to be a regular occurrence. And it's going to be something that gets dealt with and handled before you even know about it. And so my point is that it gives doctors the power to have that business where you literally can practice the way you want, but you got to make that decision.
0: And it starts really again with leadership. Would you say that's what your clients value the most about the coaching and and the education that you give them? Yeah, I think so. I think it inevitably, I laugh because
1: one of my longest standing clients, we joke about it, that when we started the coaching, I would tell you that, and he would tell you, the initial reactions were, oh boy. (laughs) And I give him credit. He's completely upfront and honest. And he just said, boy, Brian, It sounds like you're talking about a fantasy world. It sounds like you're describing this land where the chocolate river flows to the bubblegum mountains. I mean, it just doesn't sound like this is reality. I mean, I can't. I've tried hiring. I try to hire well. I don't get who I'm looking for. I try to talk to good patients. I don't get who I'm looking for. And over the course of time, it's dramatically changed his approach. And he's seeing how it works. And He's made some hiring decisions and built an incredible team now. And he's talking about, he specifically said to me, man, I really like the business that I have now. It really, you know, I used to love being a doctor and not like the business. Now I really like the business. And he talked about, boy, I love my team. You know, I talked to him at the beginning about, for example, one of the key aspects of leadership is very much in parallel with being a parent, right? About unconditional love, about putting them first. If you have a bad team, you're going to think, I'm not doing that. I'm not unconditionally loving these people. (laughs) Sure. I get it. And that's all the more reason why you got to have the right people on your team. But again, once you do it and you start bringing the right people on, then it fuels itself. And all of this, the big challenge, I think the big breakthrough that I get with my clients is around what again, Stanford professor Jim Collins talks about in Good to Great, he talks about the flywheel effect. He talks about what all the great companies did is they invested their time, energy, money in the hard stuff that really started hard. And a flywheel, for anyone who doesn't know, it's a mechanical wheel with a weight on it that carries momentum. It's used in machines. A great example is like at uh, kids' playgrounds, there's usually a little merry-go-round wheel where kids hop on it it's heavy it takes a little effort to get it turning but once it turns everybody can jump on and the momentum keeps it spinning that's a flywheel example an example of a flywheel so what jim collins talks about is that flywheel effect when you put the effort in the hard stuff it's hard at first it takes weight it doesn't move much but then it starts to gather momentum and it spins faster and faster and it takes less and less effort to maintain and that's really if i oversimplify it that's the core of the message that i try to bring which is doing what you've always done doing more marketing simply just more marketing discount more aggressively you know spend more on google ads etc that's easy it feels easy right now it's worked in the past it's comfortable but the more you do it the harder it gets if my approach to business growth is market more you're the marketing expert. You know better than I. If I market a generic message and I just say, OK, I'm going to spend more on Google Ads to promote it widely and I'm going to discount, I'm going to offer a more aggressive discount to attract more people, it'll work. But then when you have to do it again next month <laughs> you get to spend more to get it wider, yep. you get a discount more aggressive to get attention and you don't have to be a Harvard or Oxford graduate to know. That if I built my business model around the idea that the costs are almost guaranteed to go up and the revenues almost guaranteed to go down, you're going to be in trouble. And so it feels easy though to start because we've done it before. It's worked in the past. It's worked for look at all the businesses that are doing it, but it gets harder. In contrast, doing the right things and putting the effort in some of these things that are easy to talk about, but are different. I could, you know, it's easy to say, build a great team. Okay, Brian, I'll get right on that. Thanks for the tip. It's hard. Doing it is hard. But like the flywheel, when you put the effort in and you put the investment in, it turns quicker and better and faster. And before you know it,
0: it's carrying its own momentum and it gets a lot easier. Right. The sustainable part of that being the, the kind of key attraction. So, Brian, you've listened to the show. You've been a big supporter right? so right? and I appreciate you doing so. You know how I always end with a question about the theme of the show being finally where we look to kind of patient research and the amount of people saying, you know, I'm finally ready to live this way. I'm finally ready to get this procedure done or whatever it may be. I just wondered if you've had any finalies recently. For myself, you know, yeah, I think, you know, through my business,
1: it's been an interesting approach from, look, I believed in what I set out to do. I believed that a differentiated message would be worthwhile and create a lot of value for my clients. I really believed in it, but like any business, you start with the belief and the intuition first, and usually you're a community of one. And sure. so it starts there. And so I started with that vision that I really could make an impact and health practices. And like the last example I gave, I would say, you know, to my finally, I would say I'm getting to the point where I finally feel like, yes, there's the evidence. I feel confident that I can point directly to see here are some practices. They've taken the effort. It's been a challenge. They're starting to say, finally, I feel like I'm getting a business that reflects the type of surgeon I am and the type of practice I want. And I feel the same on my practice, that I am finally at that point where I feel confident that there's a lot of value above and beyond the spreadsheet and revenue generation
0: that we can do for practices. Absolutely. And I hope this podcast gives an intro to a few people that may not have heard you speak before. So, Brian, thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure, George. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely.